just as an aside, what day do you do mastery on there? Do you do it on Tuesdays? Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time for urban enthusiasm rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Neil Almond. Lovely to be here. And Dave Taylor. Hi, Kieran. Thanks for having me. Now, this week, the focus is going to be backward faded examples. But first, Neil, what's you reading for? What are you reading for? So I've fallen down a bit of a morphology uh, rabbit hole. And so recently I've been reading a paper called How Morphology Impacts Reading and Spelling, Advancing the Role of Morphology in Models of Literacy Development. And this is by Kyle Levesque, uh, Helen uh, Breadmore and uh, S. Deacon. And they kind of just take you through um, a couple of highlights from what is already known kind of about uh, morphology. But what I, the main thing that I love about this paper is that it's very clear, black and white. They just talk very easily and they literally have a section that says highlights what was already known about this topic, what this paper adds to that kind of uh, knowledge and then the implications that this has for uh, further reading. So uh in their kind of, in their words, um, they feel this paper adds uh, recent empirical evidence to specify the multiple roles of morphology and literacy development. And they present this morphological pathway framework, which identifies explicit mechanisms between morphology and literacy, literacy skills and guides its inclusion into theory. So if you're interested in uh, morphology and if you caught um, Mark McCourt's uh, talk about what the Romans did for us. There's plenty of morphological uh, thinking going on there in that particular talk. Uh, yeah, quite an interesting paper as to what's going on uh, within the mind on that one. Uh, Dave, what are you reading for? I, I found a little bit of time this week <laughs> to read um, some snippets of Ollie Lovell's Tools for Teachers book, uh, which is, uh, I guess, learnings from the Education Research Reading Room podcast. Um, I, I don't find a lot of time to read, but that's that's a bit that I've been dipping into. Nice. I've um, also read, well, haven't finished, but the first chapter we were talking about, Dave, on explicit instruction is really, really good, isn't it? So well worth it. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. I've been reading, uh, it's it's an interesting paper. It's about this project from the 1980s, and it's by Alan Schoenfeld, and it's called Expert and Novice Mathematical Problem Solving. Um, not entirely convinced many direct applications in the classroom but an interesting sort of history of problem solving thought at that time so yeah so that, uh, like you say you're going down this morphology rabbit hole neil i've gone down a bit of a, the history of problem solving and what, <laughs> and what people thought in the past and this one's got your classic u.s department of education stamp and then that nice. you know that funny text you get where is it like, is this from a book or <laughs> it's definitely not a pdf <laughs> so this week Backward faded examples is the focus. Dave, you are our resident expert who, and Neil and I will be putting you through your paces. But I thought it might be interesting for anyone, you know, 
who isn't aware of your work, give yourself a short introduction. Let us know who you are. Okay. Um, I, I wrote some things down so I don't forget things. Uh, I'm Dave Taylor. I am a secondary maths teacher from Leeds, uh, where I work in a school three days a week, and I work for Complete Maths two days a week. I am on Twitter at, at TaylorDA01, uh, and I have a website at TaylorDA01.weebly.com. Uh, where you can find sets of increasingly difficult questions and backward-faded maths uh, tasks. I guess it's called backward-faded maths. I guess that's why I'm here today. You're also the host of a podcast that both Neil and I have featured on recently. What's that about, Dave? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I forget. I forget all of all my all of my multifaceted and my, you know, all my talents. Um, I am the host of a podcast called Teaching Together. Uh, the podcast from Complete Mathematics, where we look at a single objective in detail from the Complete Maths curriculum to improve our <laughs> teaching together. <laughs> there we are. <laughs> That's the best fit. Yeah, um, it's the only reason I agreed to go on it. I, <laughs> I mean, it's fantastic because essentially by the end of this first run of episodes, you're aiming to have an episode for every like sort of granule on the, in the in the Complete Maths universe. There's only 1,800, so <laughs> having done 18 episodes so far, we're about 1% of the way through, so I'm, I'm going to be I'm gonna be in a job for a while. And uh, I guess then you could roll it out to the uh, English and science curriculum that's now become available too. Yeah, what, what I'll do is I'll do what Kieran does, and I'll just be the host and invite other people on to, to lead those conversations. <laughs> oh, you, you don't know how good it is, Dave. Sometimes I don't say anything at all except for the questions. I could just sit back on a Wednesday night and go, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if we try to do all of the objectives on the English curriculum, <laughs> we'd be <laughs> I mean, I do I do need a job for a while. My, my electricity bills keep rising, so. Yeah, <laughs> don't go there. Um, I keep on telling Dave as well. He'll get all to 1800 and then, uh, you know, it'll be a curriculum reform. So you have to rejiggle a few things and then just start <laughs> the whole thing again. Yeah. <laughs> have you used any of the slides in class, Neil? Because obviously we've done a few from the sort of stage one to six ballpark and you written one. Did you use them in class before you wrote them? Uh, not yet. No, but I've signed parts teachers who I know are when they come to teaching uh, volume of a cuboid and from stage five, I think. And I think Dave and I recorded some early algebra from stage six. So I've kind of signposted them to that and say, listen to the podcast follow that link to the Google Slides and that will give you a fantastic start for teaching that small little granule. So looking forward to them using it and hopefully seeing some results with that. Looking forward to the feedback. Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, it's just the right size as well. It's like, what, 15, 20 minutes? If, as long as Stuart's not involved. Yeah, if Stuart's <laughs> involved, it turns into more like 45. <laughs> 35 with a bit of clever editing. I think it, uh, it makes sense to start with some definitions. When we say backward-faded examples, Dave, what do we mean? So backward-faded examples are sets of worked examples where the latter solution steps are faded in subsequent examples to give completion problems. So to give an example, I would take um, uh, a question. I would um, write a fully worked example for it, and then I would write a similar question with the solution steps complete until the final step and emit that. And then I'd write another one and then emit the final two solution steps. And then the final problem that um, that I include on the worksheets that I put together 
is a fourth one that is just for, for pupils to go out by themselves. And what sort of situation are you using them in? Are you using them for, as part of your instruction or practice? Um, so I, I guess that the way that I've mostly used them is, is when I'm responding to, to, to kids and, and their answers in tests. When I know that the pupils have all the prerequisite parts to, to succeed at this thing, but they just don't have the understanding of how to put it together. Uh, and I think that this is the like the main aim of of um, of using backward faded, uh, well, backward fading as an instructional technique. Uh, I think that the way that we get the most out of them is for things that require greater thought and the use of flexible knowledge. So I'd avoid using them for something like um, adding fractions, but I would use them for uh, when pupils are using the idea of adding fractions in some sort of like worded non-routine problem. You know, a, a nice simple example would be maybe um, Kieran eats half a pack of biscuits, Neil eats a third of the pack of biscuits. What fraction of the pack of biscuits is left? Just a few kind of practicalities on this one, Dave. Kind of like, is this something that you've like pre prepared? So, like, you just know I can go to like the next slide and it's there, or are you at the point where your mastery of uh, backward fading examples is so strong that you can almost just knock these out in class with them um, yeah with live as it were i mean i have some colleagues who knock everything out live and that's that's not for me that um i am well prepared for for most things that i can be well prepared for so i'll come with a stack of backward faded sheets because what i, I don't want the pupils to be writing things down in their exercise book and then looking up and then that up and down motion uh adding to their cognitive load the, I, the reason that i'm doing this is that the cognitive load within the problem is high enough to cause them a problem. So I need to reduce the cognitive load as much as possible and direct their, you know, di direct their attention and use the germane cognitive load as best as I can to, uh, to, to try and foster some understanding with this idea. Yeah. Even, even the fact that you're talking about how you're trying to control for cognitive load and things shows that this isn't something you're going to make up on the hoof. You know, you're putting a lot of thought into the preparation and so yeah that, make, that makes total sense how can we get the most from backward faded examples some kids really like them and others don't so if i use my year 10s as, as an example um we were doing bearings and we were trying to find a location from two bearings and my year 11 my year 10s were having difficulty with that um, so I, I, I faded it. I gave them the fully worked solution, drawing the bearing from A, drawing the bearing from B, and then where the two lines cross, that's where C is. And then I faded that out by drawing the bearing from A and leaving the bearing from B. And then they had a completion problem to, to draw both. And from the 29 kids that are in the room, uh, one's always absent. <laughs> so of the 29 who are in the room, 27 of them are like, yeah, I found this really useful. And one of them who is, I mean, he's the kid who could get a nine now. Like he's going, yeah, I don't find this useful. And and that actually makes sense because in all the literature and on the website um, that I've created a video for, there is a point uh, where pupils gain expertise from being novice towards being expert. And there is a point called the um, expertise re retrieval. It's the expertise retrieval effect. And at the point that the pupil no longer needs to self-explain this problem they don't need the 
the solution steps given to them, they can just do it. Whereas the other 28, they, they weren't expert with this idea and they needed the solution steps to guide them through it. And so I, it arcs back to cognitive load in, in so many ways, because I mean, the reason that they can't do it is it's just too much for them. Even though I know that in the example that I gave, they can add fractions. They don't see that they're supposed to add fractions when you eat a third of a, of a pack of biscuits, Kier, and a Neil, you eat a, a, a half or whatever it was. Mm. Um, they don't understand that they're adding fraction and then subtracting from the whole. They see that as something entirely different. And I mean, why wouldn't they without being shown how to, I guess, problem solve within the, the domain of what we're covering? And I think that that's an important element of, of where we use backward faded examples is we teach pupils how to problem solve. So we don't say things like, um, if it's tricky, draw a picky, uh, when they have no idea what kind of picture that they're trying to draw with it, because otherwise they're just going to draw a pack of biscuits. And they're like, so I've, I've no idea what I'm doing with this. Um, if they've been shown the solution steps within the domain of the, of the problem that we're working on, then they stand more of a chance of of succeeding with that. Makes sense. So obviously, as I say, Dave, you're a, a math specialist, so you don't kind of have that issue at, at primary where you have to teach one lesson and then think about very quickly, uh, you know, your cognitive load that needs to go back to the English lesson, the DT lesson you're going to do. So roughly like you know, on average, say like how long would it take you to kind of come up with these problems? How many of these problems are you probably doing uh, you know, within a, a learning episode to use the, uh, you know, a complete mass terminology here? And what's you know, kind of like, if it's pre-prepared, have you ever found this yourself in a situation where I haven't done enough examples, so I do need to do some live, or is there always you know, too many so that never has to happen? I mean, I'm, I'm not putting these in every in every single learning episode. Um, mostly, I, I I use them personally when I am responding to a to a test question. So it's not as though I'm trying to think these things up. I'm responsive to how my year tens or my year elevens have done. Um, I teach year seven, year 10, and year 11. And I've not got to a point where I've found a question that my year sevens have struggled with on the whole that I need to back refer it for them. So when, when my year 11s do an exam and I know that we can, I know they've got the mathematical ability to do this. And I, know, I know they've got the mathematical knowledge because they've shown me in class and they've shown me over time. And then it comes to an exam question where it phrases it a little bit differently and it absolutely froze them. That's the bit at which I start to create a resource for them so I can put a sheet in front of them. So because it's wholly responsive, I know that they need that thing and I can prepare that and give it them when I need it to. And so I don't find myself in the situation where I need to backward fade, I guess, on the hoof or on the fly or whatever we want to phrase ours. Do you, do you find you get transfer then across to different types of pros? So like in this instance, it was it was the problem type or the, the surface structure that sort of got them. Do you find you get transfer when you use the sort of the backwards fading? Yeah. So the, the, the optimal use of backward fading would, would give you far transfer. Um, and, and the way that pupils are sort of directed through a thought process by using them, by using them effectively, means that they develop that thought process when it comes to another problem. And so, I mean, there are, there are many pitfalls that you can find with something like backward fading. When I mean, when you learn about something new, it's all you do, isn't it? Like you, you teach the kids how to solve quadratics um, and all of a sudden that's all they want to do. 
they just want to solve a quadratic. And, you know, you teach the kids um, like right angle trigonometry and then you give them a Pythagoras problem and they're like, sir, there are no angles. And I'm like, yeah, no, maybe you should use something else that, you know, and they're like, oh, all right, okay, yeah, yeah. What? Okay, well, this clearly isn't landing, is it? Um, but when he's when a teacher finds out about backward fit and maybe they go, oh, this is so good, I'm going to do this with everything that I can find. And I don't think that's the solution. I think like the the major pitfall that we get with backward fading and how it doesn't give us a far transfer is when teachers give too much scaffolding. And so we see maybe scaffolded worksheets as a backward faded worksheet. And, and I don't think that the two are the two are the same. Like a lot of people, I say a lot of people, there are not many people creating them, but the pitfall that you find is that people give hints rather than prompts. And I mean, and, and Mark McCall, uh, when him and I, well, when he and I were talking about backward fading, we talked about the prompts and he said that they're, they're not an instruction, they're a question. So the hint tells people what to do. It says, you've, you've got a, a, a rectangle of area 12 and uh, side length four. So the hint will say, divide 12 by four. Divide the area by the length to find the to find the height. Whereas the prompt says, how can I find the other side length of the rectangle? And the prompt is intended to have the, the pupil self-explain that, well, they, they try to generate the hint for themselves. Mm. How do we find the, the other length in the rectangle? We divide the area by the length. And that's the answer that I give myself when I answer the question, how do we find the other length of the rectangle? And then the hint might say, add together the side lengths. Whereas the prompt will say, how do you find the perimeter of the rectangle? And so you're asking people to self-explain all the time. And so they're getting into the habit of looking at something and asking themselves a question about what they're trying to do with it, as opposed to always looking for an instruction uh, to follow. Would you say that as much time is spent then thinking of the prompts as the as the actual question itself, or is it once you have prompts in place, they can tra- they can sort of be used across the board? So the prompts are they're also kind of specific, but at the same time as being specific, they're general. Like it's it's not you know it's how do you find the perimeter? It's mm-hmm. it's how do you. And so that becomes an extension of, of, of the problem-solving strategy. Ask yourself, how do we, and try and get an answer from it. Um, writing the prompts is actually quite tough, particularly with some things, because if you're looking for something like factorizing a quadratic, I mean, what prompts can you give other than factorize a quadratic? And you're like, oh, I'm just going to have to have to do that then. And there's no thought process going into it. Maybe... Um, the the you know if you're given the the quadratic and the prompt is find the length of the rectangle or how can we find the length of the rectangle and your answer to that is if I'm given an expression which is a quadratic I'm gonna have to factorize it to find the two lengths that I multiply together to give that and so the prompt there is I mean it's it's, it's a better prompt but is it a good enough prompt that's gonna give a someone who's on the novice to expert continuum somewhere in the middle where we're seeing this expertise reverse at some point is the prompt going to hook that kid in and help them or is it just going to confuse them as they were before i can see this being like just like a, just if you put the 
backward fading example side of it just to a side for a minute like as a planning tool just being able to have that clarity of thought as to you know what question you're going to ask for kids at that point when they you know might become you know stuck at that point you know it strikes me that you'd have a real clarity of thought and thinking as to you know what happens you know quite deliberately at each step and so I think even as a tool to kind of think about just planning um, it sounds particularly useful I think for yeah, particularly that novice teacher to actually sit down and be like right imagine you are asking you know a question to elicit what you need to do at each step of whatever you know, insert x problem here sounds you know, really useful it sounds like they have to think quite deeply one might say uh, about about it <laughs> yeah i mean there's no point just handing a sheet out to kids and saying right get on with this so i mean you need to to engage them in some way so even the questions that they've got wrong in an exam which is my major use of them stick that question on the board and try and get some sort of emotional response to it. Oh, I, I, I didn't get this. And then another kid will go, oh, do I do that first? And, and then you can, the questions that you've already thought up, the prompts that you've already, you've already written, these are the ones that you speak, that you're saying out loud to the kids while they're discussing the problem that they couldn't do. And so the, the way that, I mean, it's really easy to stand over a child and, and just tell them what to do. It is more difficult on the hoof to just think of a prompt that will get them to engage their thinking properly, uh, that will have a deeper impact than you standing over this kid who's just not getting it and you end up just going, dude, just factorise it. Just factorise it for me. Uh, at which point that child learned nothing. They just, they did what you knew they could already do, but they didn't realise that that's what they should be doing. And as a result, there, there's no benefit from that. Where do you display the prompts? I mean, I'm thinking, you know, is it on the board? Is it an additional piece of paper? I mean, I think in, in secondary school, it's slightly different from primary. You know, in primary, we can probably double back it and put it on the wall so that everyone can see it all the time. But it does, because you guys are changing classrooms, that's not necessarily the case. What's your, what's your, you know, how could you do this with the least effort possible? So because the prompts are specific to the question that, that they've been asked, they are printed next to the solution steps. And so the prompts will be on the left and then the first solution step will be um, on the right and then second prompt, second solution step and, and all the way down. And then the prompts remain there. And what, what's, I mean, what's an interesting thing to do is, is fade out the prompts as you fade out the solution steps. So maybe leave the final prompt in as you fade out the final solution step and then fade out the final two solution steps and the final prompt so that they're having to think about what that prompt was rather than just being given the prompt? I mean, the only time I've ever really sort of experimented with prompts was last academic year, and it was more a general how to analyze a worked example. So the, the I think they were year three, uh, the last group we did this with. So they were ready to explain to a, another person. And so you had some general questions that focused their attention yeah. on, on the type of explanations they meant. But this, this, uh, this sounds like next level. You know, like you say, having it, sort of marry up with with both i think yeah sounds really effective i mean neil have you tested any of this stuff out in your own classes yeah i seem to and say dave may dave may tell me off um i, 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 I never tell anybody off anymore i've, I've, I've learned from that <laughs> um i have used them for some like procedural things where obviously the primary where they are far less uh of a far less of an expert and they're far more novices but for things like 
for those real heavy procedural things like you know two digit by two digit multiplication where there just are like so many steps and you can always like guarantee they're going to forget to you know drop that zero when they're uh, multiplying by that uh, you know second multiplicand because they just forget what that you have to do that so I have kind of used it at a point where they can just almost a bit like you know, real kind of careful deliberate practice of right so I need you to add the two add the two products together as would be like your final step then I'd kind of remove that so actually then they have the um the 10 has been like a zero placeholder there already so all they have to do is then like multiply by the what would be the first of the like the tens digits say of the, the second uh number then you kind of remove the placeholder so then they need to remember to put the placeholder then kind of like fade out and then eventually they kind of do uh all of their kind of stuff then they have to go through that whole like procedure by themselves because i've kind of found particularly when children aren't that confident with their own like times tables i've found either making sure that you're multiplying by like 11 all the time because they can go through the procedure and like the times tables aren't really an issue then because there's multiplying by one and most kids know those uh you know can do the one times table pretty well and then as i say sometimes i've had to use those examples of like backwards fading as well to kind of just you know produce that cognitive load just that manage that cognitive load um you know even more to make sure that you know i understand that right now i need them to learn this procedure so that's what i need to make sure they do and i've found i have found it quite useful i think for all that um having looked at it with english as well i think there's quite a few things with english that you can use them for i remember doing a lesson with um direct speech so understanding the rules of when to use um uh, inverted commas so where the punctuation goes uh making sure you put the comma you know before you write down or after the reporting clause etc etc so i've used them for that where there's quite a lot of where it's quite procedural and there's you know quite a lot of tiny little elements going i just want them to kind of like practice each one individually and like gradually kind of build build that expertise up in a kind of cumulative way because I kind of feel like that's what that backwards fading allows them to do they can practice you know one step quite a few times but still feel quite successful they don't they don't necessarily like feel like they're they quite enjoy it they certainly I think it has a bit of a a novelty effect the first time you see it and for kids who are a little bit hesitant they seem to enjoy the fact that you know they can do a question quite quickly where everybody had to do like one bit so kind of it's a good little confidence builder as well I think you um thought about forward fading as a as a technique. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a good video, I think, by what's his name? It's an old video. I think it's like by Fred Jones. Um, I remember Ollie Cav tweeting it out and uh it's really it's really good. I think he uses what we would call kind of like forward fading, where you know each procedure is done in order, but instead of you know, it's so if you had a procedure that's like kind of five steps, you'd split your board into kind of fifths. And then you'd kind of have, uh, you know, step one, get the kids to do a you know, participate as much as possible. Then in the second one, like step one and two, and then step one, two, three, step one, two, three, four, and then step one, two, three, four, five. So they can kind of see then how um, that all works. Because um, I remember, I think the what he says in that particular video is how about if you have a, a fully procedured, you know, whatever it is, and you asked a pupil to just say, uh, you asked a pupil, okay, so what did I do? At, you know, what was the third step to solve this problem? Because they're looking at a fully completed example, it's, it, they can't really identify what step three was because obviously working memory, they can't hold on to that information. So we're 
when you think about it, you know, I'm going to literally compartmentalize each step so they can see how each one like builds up. They can kind of then see, okay, so that's what step one is. That's what step two is, step three, step four, step five, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I actually interpreted forward fading differently uh, oh. to that. So uh, like, like how you, you know how in backward fading you fade from the end? Yeah. Forward fading, I interpret as fading from the beginning and, and fading out your first solution step. Okay. So I, I spoke about this with our uh, business studies teacher, um, how maybe his kids, maybe his pupils um, don't, don't necessarily know how to phrase the opening of something. So maybe he's he's concluding that a business is profitable because of this. So maybe the, the final solution step is the business is profitable. And so the third solution step was to calculate profit, which means that you need to calculate sales and and costs. I mean, I'm, I've not done businesses since I was 16, um, which is it's getting on for 21 years now. But I think that if if you were to give a fully worked solution and then you were to fade out the first step, which is calculating revenue, which in, in very basic terms is just number of items sold multiplied by price per item. If you don't know that's your first step and that's the first thing that you want them to focus on, then you can fade from the first solution step, but then you've still got the end thing, which says that the business is or isn't profitable which means that you've yeah. kind of got a hint there is to say that if you've, if you've got your sales, then the the bit that you should get there is less than your sales. I'll have to go back and have a look and see whether I've no doubt your knowledge of this is far superior to mine. So well, I don't know what I've been doing. I, Maybe it hasn't I wouldn't, been I wouldn't be so sure. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you're the thing you mentioned, Neil sounds really good. I mean, cause I recommend labeling with numbers, but actually that way is a lot clearer if you break the board down into different parts i think yeah that makes a whole lot of sense because i'm i'm literally adding extra digits to my calculations you working um yeah so yeah so I, I think i might test that out the next time i'm in a classroom um and i might suggest to people that they they do so too tables are really helpful for that kind of thing to, to separate things out um i mean when uh, i listened to uh, michael pershin probably on the mr bar mouse podcast talking about two column proofs i was like what 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 and and I've always found that when pupils are proving that two triangles are congruent, for example, their work is all over the place. And since I've started using two column proofs, I've just chucked that into my lessons. And now I insist on pupils using a two column proof. So when it comes to me marking their work on congruent triangles, it's it, it's just ordered and it just makes sense. And and they clearly know what they're doing because it's structured. And then, you know, you don't need to to number anything. And, and as you said, add, add extra digits, which probably adds to a cognitive load when a, a kid's looking at a fully worked solution. So, I mean, listening to you both, I can relate, Neil, to what you're saying about how the, it lends itself to the procedural. So with some of the mathematics we encounter at primary, but it, do, it, it feels, Dave, like you're saying that we should try and push beyond that and that this has the power to support struggling pupils realize some pretty big truths am i am i interpreting your words correctly dave i think maybe when we talk about procedural things we're talking about scaffolding and and, and scaffolded worksheets as opposed to backward faded and maybe scaffolding is a bit like backward faded light uh, because without the prompts you don't get the benefits of, of backward fading and, and, and scaffolding clearly has has its place i mean it's been in the classroom for for decades hasn't it 
uh, and scaffolding worksheets have always been a thing. So, it, I mean, it must be beneficial, um, but potentially it's not necessarily the same as backward fading or it is the same as backward fading, but a bit of a, a simpler version of without the prompts and maybe the prompts is what makes this backward fading technique so so impactful and um, more impactful than the than the scaffolding because the pupil is just looking at i mean well that happened last time so i'll, I'll just do this this time and maybe it says find the area of the rectangle and i'm like oh well i can do that that's fine yep got that and they can go through a whole scaffolded worksheet without actually having thought about what to do whereas if you introduce prompts over hints they have to self-explain the solution steps in order to get to a i mean a solution and by self-explaining we we, we know that self-explaining requires pupils to think hard about it and memory is the residue of thought to to quote uh willingham nice that, that's really clear and uh, yeah, I, I can see the distinction. Um, is the reverse phase scaffold something different then? Is that a term I've heard before? Reverse phase scaffold? I've never heard those words together. I've heard all of the words, just just not as not as one thing. <laughs> I know all the words, just not necessarily. You know. <laughs> Sir, do you know all the digits of pi? Yeah, yeah, I know all of them. <laughs> just just not in the right order. I just don't know in the right order, yeah. <laughs> So it's um, not that I want to add to Mr. Uh, Johnny Hall's workload, but it sounds like this could be something that you could probably automate, perhaps in like very specific types of problems and structures. Would I be right in thinking that, you know, he probably could do something where certain prompts are available for each, if you could break down a certain question into uh, a certain amount of steps you could code for some prompt questions for each of those steps and obviously you, there's a nice little button that regenerates it so the the problem remains the same but the questions are different uh, sorry but the, the question remains the same but the numbers are different but the prompts are kind of the same and you could kind of fade it out am, am i going to add to his workload are you going to tell me that i'm uh a fool for thinking that we can uh you know take the take the human thinking out of this and 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 give it to our uh our resident coder i, I feel as though you're describing something that already exists on classroom neil oh, i don't know what you mean no they're <laughs> called dynamic questions and they exist for about 10 percent of the curriculum uh i think that that might be a lie don't don't hold me to that <laughs> i'm gonna we're not, we're, not, we're not recording this are we <laughs> I'm going to hold you to that one. That'll be my next thing. Dave said that this is going to be outside the curriculum. There's only done in... with classroom. They don't have the prompts, do they? Uh, yeah, the, the prompts are there. Yeah, if, if you if you get onto a, a a dynamic question, and then if you go to show the answer, then sorry, no, the prompts are not there. The solution steps are. Yeah, the prompts are not. Um, but that is a plan for. I was going to say world exclusive there, not that you know. I don't want you to reveal anything that you're not allowed to say. But I just don't see why you wouldn't include an option for prompts if you have, if you already have the facility to to do that. It's just another column in a table, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm not a coder, but it sounds like a ten second job. Johnny says whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is a first. Neil making product requests on uh, on our 
you know, there, there's a there's a process to go through, Neil. <laughs> I'd say usually it's just in person at MathsCon, but or I just email support at completemaths.com. <laughs> I mean, you've already mentioned, Dave, the one potential pitfall and the one that uh, it sounds like I fall into more often than not. Are there any pitfalls that we should avoid when trying to get the most from these? I think it's just the, the giving too much scaffolding. Like the purpose of, of using backward fading is to reduce the cognitive load, but there is a there's a negative impact of reducing the cognitive load to zero because then pupils aren't thinking. And if pupils are, are entirely automated and just following instructions, um, I guess like like coding something, then then they're not going to learn anything from it. So why bother going through the activity? Pupils need to be thinking hard for them to learn something. So the the prompts have to be there to engage the student in thinking because I, there there are there is some there are some like there is some data to this and there are some facts about a certain proportion of the uh, you know of the pupil population doesn't self-explain uh, and then that this is why the prompts are put in there to try and force this so that pupils don't self-explain themselves but they do self-explain by responding to the prompts. Um, the, like the, the act of self-explaining is, I th- the, the self-explanation effect says that it's a really positive thing to do, but also the anticipating what's going to come next is another really important thing to do while a teacher's modeling, sitting there and, and not just responding to what, what the teacher's going from the board, but thinking, oh, I wonder what they're going to do next. And then if you get it right, it's confirmation that you know what you're doing. And if you don't get it right, you benefit from the high, from the hypercorrection effect, whereby, oh, I was expecting something different. Ah, oh, I should probably remember this because that's probably important. Um, and I think that that's probably where the self-explanations sort of guide you towards in terms of the way that you are as a pupil and, and your learning behaviors. You know, I, I, am, a, I am a person that self-explains I am a person that anticipates instead of I am a person that sits in a classroom and hopes to get better at maths or English or science by being in the same room as other people doing maths, English and science, but not really doing much myself. That's genius. I mean, you're making this seem really clear, Dave. You know, I feel like I understand this a whole lot better than I did before, because I mean, what I'm taking away is that, you know, struggling people's benefit from this most being really forensic about what it is you want to utilize, what situations you want to utilize this and the the power of prompts to support people thinking. Those, those seem to be the three big takeaways. Is there anything else you would add to that, Dave? I just think just to reiterate the the selective nature of of only using it when when you feel it's appropriate as opposed to just, oh, well, we do backward fading Monday. So it's Monday, so let's do some backward fading. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's at the point where pupils are between novice and expert and you need them to like they're they're fluent with this idea and you can give them you know like right angle trigonometry problems until until the end of the lesson and they will get every single one of them right and so what they're doing there is they're just over learning which we know has no impact and so we need to we need to move them towards problem solving which experts learn best from but they're not at the stage where they can solve problems and so where we use example problem pairs to put the idea together before they develop fluency, we're now kind of going with 
example problem pairs for problem solving, uh, which are the prompts and the solution steps and the fading. And then as they build up these skills, they they then move into the the uh, like the, the, the expert area of, of the continuum, and they begin to solve problems, which increases their expertise, and they become more and more expert. So I think maybe I haven't already mentioned what you kind of maybe want to do after you've given four problems which are faded and then one completion problem is just follow this up with something similar, um, maybe same surface, different depth, same depth, different surface, so that pupils are able to look at the problem, unpick what the problem's asking them to do by self-explaining and then coming to those solutions. So this thing that they couldn't do when I talk about my experience of, of something that they couldn't do in an assessment or an exam, this is something that they couldn't do 20 minutes ago. They've now gone through a backward faded works example. And then I've given them three similar problems, which have either a different surface and the same depth or the same surface and a different depth. And if they can solve those three problems, then, I mean, you can be pretty confident that at, at the very like least near transfer has occurred and potentially far transfer has taken place as well. I want to teach tomorrow. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I want to try this. I want to, I want to do this properly. <laughs> yeah, I feel exactly the same. Yeah, that. Like, I knew the prompt, like, you got ahead of one of my questions, which was about, I heard about, you know, the prompts and that, you know, how important are the prompts, but it really does kind of sound like the prompts are, are the key and kind of, you know, thinking about, yeah, you've explained this so well just think about you know it's those prompts that actually probably make the learning happen because those are what force the the thinking to happen by uh, you know engaging with those not just the simple you know um looking at what looking at a previous example thinking about okay well what's then the next possible step um so no, as uh, kieran said i'm i'm not teaching tomorrow <laughs> I am teaching on Friday though, so uh, year six, Friday afternoon. So I'll definitely find some time to to try and write. So I might have to send them to you, Dave, if you've got some time tomorrow to uh, look over them and critique them and be honest, please, about uh, what I come up with. I'll, yeah, feel free to. Um, I mean, you, you appear to be moving towards backward faded Friday. Um... <laughs> I think it's problem solving Friday, but what we're going to do now, we're now going to have like regular problem solving Friday. And then every two weeks we'll do backward faded problem solving Friday based <laughs> on the results from just um, problem solving Friday. Nice. What I was just thinking about when you, when you meant, when you started talking then Neil was, you know, the extension prompt where you ask a pupil to give you a, an easy question and a hard question. Yeah. And I'm like, why? Like, like previous me was like, well, why are you doing that? That's just, like just give them something else to do like be prepared don't just come up with like this this basic this basic extension problem that can be applied to everything because and, and to me it seemed a little bit lazy and this was me who hadn't had this explained to me and then one day i just had this this penny drop moment where i was like actually no if a pupil can write a really good question on it their depth of understanding is really 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 deep whereas if they think that a harder question is just increasing the size of the numbers like when a when a year seven child comes up to you and goes, oh, what's what's three million times four? And you're like, twelve million. And like, wow, you can do really big numbers. And I'm like, <laughs> that's not how you make something difficult. Maybe that's that's why it's because as a as an experienced teacher who hasn't maybe had backward and explained, 
quite so well, a backward faded uh, worksheet, you, you're basically just looking at it and going, why would I give this to the kids? It's half completed. Like, and if you don't explain this well to the kids about why you're doing it, the kids can look at it and go, oh, winner, serves on the first three parts of it. I've only got to do the last one. <laughs> um, and so you can get into a really poor mindset. And I mean, I was listening to um, uh, the Tips for Teachers podcast earlier about do nows. And the, the first bit of advice was explain to the kids why you're doing what you're doing. Uh, at which point you, you explain, I mean, you give kids the, the learning behaviors that you want you're exposing them to the learning behaviors that, that you want them to have. And as a result, by telling them why you're doing what you're doing, they become better learners, even if maybe you didn't actually do what you were trying to do. Like if you explain that you do now is always retrieval practice and the benefits of retrieval practice, and maybe what you're doing isn't exactly retrieval practice, but they go away and they think about the spacing effect and, they write down what they've done. They space it out, for, you know, the next day and the next week and then a month later and then three months later in their revision plan. And eventually they, they, they become better learners because you explained it to them. And so, you know, that's probably beneficial to do with kids as well. Yeah, I agree. I, um, I'm i a big fan of simple questions that can be generalized across a whole uh, range of different ideas that can just be that quick little extension for um, those quick graspers and quick finishers I think they're so so valuable um one because actually I think they make them think a lot more than just an additional worksheet of you know either just at worst you know more of the same that they've already done which isn't really you know moving their thinking on forward um versus then obviously you know teacher prep time you know particularly in the primary context where they've got to do so many so I remember I was doing a conference for some ECTs um, I think it was last week, we we're looking at hinge questions about adaptive teaching and it's a common question that came up was, well, what do you do then for those kids who get those multiple choice hinge questions, uh, you know, correct, you know, quite quickly and, and say, well, the easiest thing to do is just say, uh, right, we'll come up either, you know, come up with your own question on the same thing and think carefully about the distractors that you might provide to see if you can trick me or, you know, you might whisper them you know this answer is correct can you write another question uh, where actually option d is the correct answer or can you write a quick little sentence or two explaining what why a child may have said c was the answer and not what you said it was and just like those three little things small you know quick little prompts that you can give out um you know and you can apply that logic to any well-designed multiple choice question that's going to keep them you know busy and thinking hard for you know for an age you know certainly long enough for you you know a hinge question should be pretty short and sharp anyway you know long enough for them to be uh, you know engaged in thinking rather than just uh, you know twiddling their thumbs so yeah big fan of simple little questions like that that actually you know big benefit I think in terms of when you're thinking through that ratio lens of you know, what children are actually thinking about when you get them to do yeah, certain things in the classroom. So just on, on that extension prompt, I'm assuming that the depth of understanding that you get from the distractors is the thing that you you can then go and say to those kids, actually, um, your distractors aren't very distracting. Like if, I mean, if, if you were doing geography and you were to ask them, you know, the multiple choice question is, what's the capital of Australia? And they were to write London, Paris, Munich and Canberra. 
like kids are going to get that right even though they have no idea that Canberra is the capital of Australia whereas yeah. if that instead said Sydney, Canberra, Melbourne and uh, another Australian <laughs> Darwin I think that's how it was that state I don't know <laughs> who knows um, you know that that is that's a better depth of understanding in the capital of Australia exactly and again it's just yeah, a quick little thing you can put in your pocket and as I say you know works for Matt I think I've not thought deeply enough about it, but I think it's kind of one of those little question prompts that, you know, does transcend all the subjects. Yeah, we used to have um, the final question on a retrieval practice would have been a confidence weighted multiple choice question. And the expectation that anyone who got that far could explain why the distractors have been chosen and they would they would be asked during the, the review section. So you could almost guarantee they were... Uh, they were getting challenged in that way. So I'm, uh, whenever you were speaking, I'm totally 100% with that. We could probably talk about this all night, but we've got uh, families to go back to and Neil's got to find out where Shannon is. So... <laughs> she has arrived home safely. I, I heard <laughs> All that's left to do is say thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much, Neil. No problem. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for having me. And to everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening.